Father God, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to gather, for the opportunity to be here with God's people, to sing Your praises, to consider Your greatness, and to surrender our lives to Your Word. Lord God, if Your Spirit does not move and work in our midst, then all we do is vain. Lord, my prayer this morning is that the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and will point us to our Savior, the Son of God, so that You, God, get all the glory. Lord, I am a mere man. I cannot save souls. I cannot mature saints, but Your Spirit can. And God, King Jesus, our crucified and resurrected and ascended Savior, is ruling His church through His Word. So God, I pray today that You will speak, that You will move, that You will enlighten our eyes to comprehend the greatness of who You are. God, that You will stir our souls with passion and fire. I pray, God, that You will create in us new affections and desires that magnify Your greatness. I pray that You will, God, wean us off of this fallen world that cannot satisfy. Help us to stop trying to be in charge of our lives and to recognize that You alone are God. God, help us to rest in Your sovereignty and know that You do not forsake or forget Your people. God, on a morning where we are hopeful and excited and expectant, God, help us to not be distracted from why we're here. This is Your day. This is Your Word. This is Your world. Christ is King Christ is Lord, and You deserve all glory. So God, take our eyes off of ourselves and help us to behold You for who You are. Help us to feel our smallness and to feel Your weightiness. God, give me the gift of self-forgetfulness. Help me to preach to an audience of one and help my chief delight to be to dedicate all of this sermon, every word, every thought, to making much of You. I ask these things in the precious and strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. My great fear this morning for my own soul, but also for Yours, is that we will be so swept up in the excitement of a pastor here candidating that we will forget to fix our eyes where they truly belong. This isn't about me. Or my family, it's not about you. Ridgecrest doesn't exist for you. It exists for God. The God of glory who has revealed Himself in His Word. The God of glory who alone can satisfy our souls. And the reason that I chose Isaiah 40 to consider together today is because I know of no greater text that points us to the greatness of the Lord to the bigness of our God, and to the comfort that He provides to us no matter what valley or hardship we are facing. 
In Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet Isaiah begins to address a looming problem for the southern kingdom of Judah. A looming situation that is coming because of their sin. And what that looming problem is, is that the evil Babylonian empire is on the horizon, headed their way, and will soon come in, destroy their temple of worship, tear down their walls, kill many of their people, and take the rest far from home to exile in a foreign land. And yet it's in the midst of this looming threat that the God of all grace speaks through his covenant enforcer, Isaiah, and says, Isaiah, what my people need right now is a word of comfort and a word of hope. When it seems like things in their life have gotten so bad that they can't get worse. When they find themselves in a place where they're tempted to just give up on trusting in the goodness and the faithfulness and the covenant of God. God in grace and mercy draws near to his covenant people and he speaks promising them comfort. Reminding them where lasting joy and peace and comfort and rest are found. And as he does that under this theme of the comfort of God, as we walk through these verses in Isaiah 40, I want to highlight five turns in the text. Five key truths that we must wrap our head around and see and feel in our hearts if we will grasp what God's word of comfort to Judah means for us today. I want to highlight for you today the problem, the promise, the solution, the obstacles, and the outcome. The first thing I want you to see in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 40 is the problem that necessitates the comfort that God's people need. And the problem is this, comfort is needed because of the guilt and the power problems that God's people have that are above their pay grade. Heartbreakingly, Judah will soon find themselves in exile. They will be far from home, under foreign rule, unable to worship God in the right way. They will have lost their homes, lost their families, lost their culture, and lost their way of life. But what we have to understand is, is the hardship that they are soon to be facing is a hardship that they are facing because of their own sin. You see, we live in a culture today that is training and discipling us to blame everyone but ourselves for our problems. And while it's true in a fallen and broken world that we can be sinned against, that is not the case for the people in the southern kingdom of Judah. Instead, no matter how much they wanted to point their finger at their families for their problems, or at their circumstances, or at their problems that have arisen that are outside of their control, their ultimate problem was caused by their rebellion against God. 
Do you know who the God of Israel is? He's the one who created them from the barren womb of Sarah. He's the one who sustained them from the famine through raising Joseph to power. He's the one who delivered them from Egyptian bondage in the book of Exodus through the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea. He's the one who spoke his good law and entered covenant with them at Sinai. He sustained them when they were faithless in the wilderness. He brought them to the promised land under Joshua. He raised up judges when they humbled themselves and cried out for a deliverer. He raised up kings to rule them. And yet, while God had been faithful again and again and again for century and century, the people of God had been fickle and unfaithful and their lives were consistently marked by idolatry, the worshiping of other gods and by injustice not loving their neighbors as themselves. And the result of them ignoring God's laws, the result of them loving the world and trusting it to satisfy instead of the God of all glory is that the covenant curses God had promised in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy were now going to fall on them. Friends, don't get it mixed up. They were reaping what they they had sown. They were eating from the table that they themselves had set. They were not only guilty before the God of all holiness, but they were powerless to fix their problem on their own. And yet, in the midst of their faithlessness, what we see here is that the Lord, who is always faithful, chooses to draw near to them. To raise them up, a prophet like Isaiah, to come and speak a word of comfort. Did you see what he called them in those first verses? He doesn't say, Isaiah, go to those people. Those people that drive me crazy. Those people that have fallen short. He says, go to my people. He still identifies with them. Did you notice that he says, don't go with a message of condemnation. Don't come and rain down fire and brimstone. No, he says, go to them tenderly with a word of consolation and comfort. Tell them that the warfare they are facing is coming to an end. That the exile they are in will not last very long. And most of all, tell them their sin and their guilt is atoned for and forgiven. God draws near to his people with a word of comfort and hope that their curse is ending. But here's the question. How can their curse just be dealt with? Why would God do this? Is that what they really deserve? How can a sinful people who have fallen short of the glory of God be forgiven? That leads us to the second turn in our text. We not only see the problem of their sin that necessitates this comfort that they need, but as the text goes on, we see secondly the promise of comfort. A comfort that will come with the arrival of God himself. When God shows up, comfort will be 
there. So that's what verses 3 through 8 highlights. What we see here is that into the wilderness, a wilderness of chaos, a wilderness of confusion, that a way will be prepared for the arrival of the Lord. And when he shows up, the whole world will be turned upside down. His coming will be unstoppable. There is nothing that can hinder the Lord from doing what he wills to do. The text actually tells us that not even the topography of the land can hinder his coming. Valleys that are deep down and low will be raised up. Mountain peaks will be brought low. Why? Because the whole created order will bend to its creator because when he shows up and speaks, things happen. His arrival will be unstoppable. His arrival will be public and glorious. The text says that his glory will be revealed so that all flesh will see it together. But it won't just be unstoppable and public and glorious. His arrival that's talked about in verses 3 through 8 will be guaranteed. Why? Because verse 5 says this is happening because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Friends, I hope you know people don't last. Churches don't last. Governments don't last. Leaders don't last. Vegetation doesn't last. Beauty doesn't last. Nothing lasts except for one thing according to this text, and that is the Word of God lasts forever. The Word of God is eternal, friends. The Word of God is the most powerful force in the universe. When God decided to create everything, He just merely spoke, and things that did not exist started to come into creation. When people who are dead in their sin and far from God, with no hope and no desire to follow Him, hear the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God, what happens? We become new creation. The Word of God is effective. The Word of God does work. When He says He's going to do something, we can take it to the bank. It will come true because it comes from God. And God is not a fickle promise maker, but He is a faithful promise keeper. Friends, I hope you know this morning the only firm foundation that exists to build your life upon is the Word of God. Can traditions be valuable? Absolutely. Can religious and spiritual experience be true and helpful? Of course they can. Your convictions, your values, and your conscience are sweet gifts from the Lord. But friends, they are only valuable when they are operating rightly in submission and surrender to the inerrant, inspired, and sufficient Word of God. It doesn't matter what the people on the news or the people in your classroom tell you there is no such thing as my truth and your truth and his truth and her truth. There is only the truth that comes from the God who is himself the standard of truth. Friends, that is what will set us apart from the world around us. What is the foundation you're building your life on and where is your authority found? We must not build our lives on faulty foundations. We must not pretend we are God. Standing above His Word, picking and choosing what we like as if we are the ultimate arbiter of truth. Your theology stinks 
if it's not in surrender to the Word of God. The application of how you live your Christian life is not right if it's not being lived in surrender and submission to the Word of God. We must hear the Word, but we also must heed the Word because unlike anything else, it will stand forever. God's people are shown in our text their sinful condition that necessitates the comfort they need. They're shown, secondly, that this promised comfort will come with the arrival of God that is guaranteed by His Word. But here's the question as the text goes on. How is God showing up going to really give us comfort? How is Him being present in our life going to solve the greatest of our problems? And that leads us to our third truth, our third turn in the text. We see, thirdly, the source of comfort. Where our text shows us in verses 9 through 14 that comfort is rooted in beholding God's person and power. Verse 9 says, Go up to a high mountain. And it doesn't say to whisper the truth. It says to loudly and proudly and fearlessly proclaim the truth. And the truth, the good news, not the good advice, the good news is this. God has arrived. The call is look at God. Focus on God. Rest in God. Dwell on God. Meditate on God. And specifically about God, they are called to focus on and behold His person and His power. His character and His attributes. His heart, but also His holiness. Look at how the text describes this God. First, we see that it describes him by his tender and fatherly affection for his people. His tender and fatherly affection for his people. Verse 11 describes the Lord as a strong shepherd. As a strong shepherd who gathers and who carries weak and helpless lambs, gently leading those who are with young. Oh, friends, if you feel weak and helpless, do you know that God, as a tender shepherd, cares for you? There is no greater comfort than a God who will draw near in eminence to hold fast a weak and struggling people. We see one here, a picture of a God who draws near to his people in love and in grace and in protection. A God who does not merely stay distant, but who makes himself known, who holds his people fast, who carries them when they can't take another step, who provides them rest when everything in the world seems out of control. We see here a picture of God who is so strong and mighty and yet his strength does not lead him to break those who are weak. We see here a picture of a God who delights in his flock, who carries them near his heart, who knows the weakness of their frame and who guards them as a protective father. I remember growing up, there were so many times as a kid that I was scared. And I remember my mom in particular, every time that she would pray, there was something she would say that when she said it, it just hit different. 
It just made me know everything was going to be okay. She would always say, God, wrap your loving arms of protection around Nick. And here's the reality. If the God that you serve is weak, then his loving arms of protection don't seem like that big of a deal. But if the God who you love and know and serve, the God of the Bible, cares for you as a father and is tender and draws near as a shepherd, but he is strong and almighty and unstoppable, then it helps you to feel a comfort that nothing else in this world can compare to. We see God described here as with tender and fatherly affection for his people, but his protection only matters if he is strong. And that's where the text goes on, and it shows us also that he's described as the almighty, incomparable God of the cosmos. Verse 10 says he comes with might and he rules by his arm. How mighty is this God? How big is your God? We see him described here as a God whose size is immeasurable. Verse 12, I mean, verse 12 says that God is literally presented as larger than life. How big is he? He can gather all the waters, all the ponds, all the, all the flood puddles, all the rivers, all the oceans in all the world, and he can gather them in the palm of his hand. That's how big God is. How big is he? We go out on a bright or a, a, a clear night and we go and look at the galaxies. We can look through our telescopes. We can study astronomy to try to wrap our minds around how big the cosmos and the galaxies are. And yet the God presented here is a God who can measure all of them in the span of his finger from his thumb to his index finger. He is a God who can take the Ozarks and the Appalachians. He's a God who can take the Rockies and the Himalayas and he he can balance them on a scale. He is a God who is so gargantuan in size that the biggest and greatest things that God has created, the endless ocean, the highest mountain peaks, the Grand Canyon, and everything else is like play toys to God who is so big and strong and mighty that we struggle with metaphors to describe who he is. This God, compared to him, everything that is is small. His size is immeasurable. But not only is his size immeasurable, the text goes on and says his mind is unteachable. Isaiah asks in verse 13, who is it that taught God? Who is it that taught him the way of righteousness? Who is it that informed him about how the world works? Who is it that taught him justice and righteousness? And the clear answer is nobody can teach God. Nobody can teach God anything. You and me, we need to be taught, don't we? We need counselors and abundance of counselors. We need, if we are going to walk in wisdom, to be teachable, to learn from others so we can grow and mature. But friends, the God that we serve, he does not need to grow in knowledge and maturity because he himself is the author of life. He is the standard of truth and goodness and righteousness and holiness. He knows all things past and present and future. He knows all things actual, but also all things possible. There is nothing Nothing you can think up in your imagination that was not first in the mind of God. He cannot be taught. His size is immeasurable. His mind is unteachable. But we also see that his character is incorruptible. 
Verse 14 says, no one taught God the path of justice. And the reason is, is because he himself is the standard of right and wrong and truth and justice. God always does what is right, no matter what us or anyone else thinks about it. God is not a moral coward who will shrink back if he is in the minority. God is not one who can be bought by the rich, deceived by the wise, or who be led to compromise when difficult circumstances arise. He does not do what is easy, take the path less traveled. He does not do what is always convenient. He does what is right because he himself is right. And he must be who he is. This God is one who is immeasurable in size, unteachable in wisdom, incorruptible in character. This is the eternal God with no beginning and end. He is the sovereign God in control of all of history. He is the self-sufficient, self-existent one, needing nothing, including us. He is omniscient and all-knowing, ever-present, everywhere at the same time. He is unchanging. He is faithful to his promises. He is the one who speaks and enemies scatter. The one whose arrival overwhelms us with all. He is the one who never forgets, who keeps every promise. This is the unstoppable, incomparable, indescribable, immutable, all-powerful God for whom the word impossible does not exist. That's the God that Isaiah is saying, remember him. Behold this God. Behold him. Your comfort must be rooted in him. And what's so amazing is that this God who is so transcendent and far above and beyond us is also a God who is imminent and draws near and makes himself known as a tender shepherd carrying helpless and weak lambs. God's arrival is guaranteed by his word. And beholding his person and his power is what gives us true and lasting joy and comfort. And the reason is, is because of that God I just described, if he is for us, who can be against us? If that God is for you, who can be against you? What circumstance, what enemy, what trial, what persecution can be against you and succeed if this Lord of glory is with you and in you and for you? It seems so simple, doesn't it? All we got to do is remember God. Focus on God. Behold God. But our text goes on and what we begin to see is that there are obstacles in our lives that keep us from enjoying this comfort. That's the the fourth truth that I want to show you in verses 15 through 26. There are obstacles to this comfort, blinders that keep us from beholding this God. The first of those blinders is this. You cannot behold God rightly until we stop navel-gazing. You know what navel-gazing means? It means staring at yourself, thinking about yourself, being focused on yourself. Verses 15 through 17 say, I'm going to describe God and I'm going to compare him to you. 
And he says, nations, you're like a drop of water from a bucket. You're like a particle of dust. You are as nothing and emptiness compared to God. These verses aren't saying that we don't matter to God, that we're not valuable and don't have inherent dignity. Of course we do. We're made in God's image. What it's saying is, is when you compare yourself to this glorious God, we are simply not that impressive. You might think you're impressive. You might think you're smart. You might think you're strong. You might think you're wealthy and powerful and you can do what you want. Oh, friend, compared to God, you and I are as nothing. We don't even register on his scale compared to him. Not just individually, but as a church, as a nation. You ever read Psalm 2? Psalm 2 says that the nations and the kings of all the earth gather together against the Lord Yahweh and his anointed Messiah, and he who sits in the heavens laughs. He starts laughing. Why? Because all the strongest people in the world gather together coming against the Lord of glory is like a bunch of toddlers with super soaker water guns going to battle against the Avengers. It's not gonna work. It's not going to be effective. It's laughable. But here's the thing. Scripture tells us on every page we're not the center of the universe. Scripture tells us on every page we're not that impressive, but the culture around us and the sinful nature inside of us is preaching to us every day the exact opposite message. It is discipling us. Focus on yourself. Be yourself. Express yourself. Please yourself. Love yourself. Serve yourself. Look within yourself. And the whole message of the Bible is ignore that garbage and die to yourself and bring your life in line with God because he's the sinner, not us. It takes the Spirit of God applying the Word of God and pointing us to the Son of God for us to battle this tendency, this sinful instinct we have to live our lives navel-gazing. We cannot enjoy and behold the goodness and the glory of God, and we cannot experience the joy and rest of God when we are busy staring at ourselves every day of our life. We can't behold God the right way until we humbly stop navel-gazing, but also until we repent of our God replacements. Verses 18 through 21 describe how stupid idolatry is. It doesn't just say it's sinful. It says it is ridiculously dumb. Why? Because, friends, if you make something with your hands, it don't matter how much money you put into it, how much gold you cover it in, or what shape it is in. If you bow down to it and pray it and think that it's hearing your prayers and it can protect you and save you and work for you, something is not right upstairs. It doesn't make sense. It's ridiculous. The, the reason the Ten Commandments, that second one says don't make any graven images, is because it doesn't matter what image you make, nothing in all of creation can rightly represent the God of all glory. We hear that. We hear about how silly and foolish idolatry is, and many of us think, all right, Nick, you got me on the navel-gazing thing. I focus on self. I need to turn from that. But idolatry, I got that down. There are no graven images. I'm not bowing down. That's not something I've struggled with. But then you just got to go read the Bible because every page is like, nope, we're all idolaters, all of us. 
It might not be a golden calf or a graven image, but an idol is any sort of a God replacement, a God substitute, anything in our lives that we put in the place of God, that we give our ultimate allegiance and devotion and worship to. And the thing that's so tricky about idolatry is that so often the greatest and most influential idols in our lives are good things that we've turned into little gods. The idols of comfort. We can turn a good career into an idol. Our bank accounts, our health, our safety, the approval of man, respect, being in charge, having control over our lives, relationships, our dreams, and a million other good things can be turned into lousy gods that overpromise and underdeliver. And we so often can fall into the trap of coming to remember and sing and worship and trust in God on Sundays only to walk out the door to live for our idols the other six days of the week. We must look at our hearts and ask, what is it that I'm the most committed to? What is it that I'm truly trusting in to satisfy? Because if we don't repent of our God replacements, we will be blinded to beholding the Lord of glory. The last obstacle is this. We can't behold God until we rightly acknowledge that He is sovereign over all. We're told in verses 22 through 26 that the Lord is sitting above the earth, ruling in his council. He is ruling above, but he's also ruling below, where we're told that kings and leaders, the most influential people in the world, are where they are because the sovereign God put them there. And they will rule as long as he ordains, but not one second longer. Governments and nations exist by the permission of God, and will only exist as long as He ordains. For a mere breath from His mouth will cause them to wither and be no more. This is the holy God who rules over all. He knows every star in the sky. We can't even count them. And yet He knows everyone, and He has placed it there, and He has put it exactly where it needs to be. This is the sovereign Creator of all the cosmos, but also the one who is in control of world history, but he's also the one who is sovereign over our lives. There is nothing in our lives that is there by accident. We do not live in a universe. We do not live in the created order where God is not in control. He is working all things even hard things that do not make sense for our good as believers and for His glory. And a lot of us have a big problem with that. If we're honest, a lot of us have a big problem because many of us are suffering under the illusion that we are in control of our lives. Just live a little bit longer and God will teach you. You're not in control of your life. Those who have control issues, who start to rage in anger when their plans don't come to pass, the dads in here who plan vacations down to the minute, and then your kids come with you, 
and you find yourself screaming in anger, we're supposed to be having fun. Don't like this. And yet, God is committed, wholeheartedly committed to helping each and every one of us get over our control issues and reminding us that He is God and we are not. So many of us find ourselves in life constantly frustrated with and questioning God because our plans are not coming to pass the way that we want them to, but God is trying to make your plans get in line with His plans because He is God and we are not. And we can only enjoy the comfort and rest that God provides when we are not focusing on ourselves, running after created idols that don't satisfy, and turning away from our control issues. We see that there are obstacles that must be overcome for us to enjoy the presence and comfort that God alone can give. But there's one last thing our text highlights. Fifth, we see the outcome of this comfort. The outcome of this comfort. We are comforted because we are known by God, empowered by God, and sustained by a God who will hold us fast. Verse 27 is the verse that we all need to look at. Because after describing who this God is and what He promises to His people, Isaiah voices what the people are thinking. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my rights has been disregarded by God. In the midst of the darkness and the distress of the exile they are in, the people of God have grown frustrated with Him. They fear that things will never improve and they're afraid that God has forgotten them. But Isaiah comes in strong in verse 28 and he says, Have you been listening to the rest of Isaiah 40? Have you forgotten who this God is? He is the everlasting sovereign creator. He is all-powerful. He never gets tired or takes naps. He never sleeps nor slumbers. He never fades or grows weak. There is nothing he does not know that you are facing in your life. He knows your ways. He knows your weakness. He knows your weariness. And he knows your wandering hearts. Even those who you know who are the most physically strong, the most mentally strong will have limits and grow faint when they're beat down enough but not this God he is not asleep at the wheel he is not distracted by other things and he is not forgetful of his people instead he is working and he is watching and he is actively moving in and through exactly what we are facing and what the text tells us is that when we surrender to and trust in and wait in Him, that this all-powerful God will sustain His people with spiritual power. He will increase the strength of our faith that grows faint when we learn to wait on 
when we learn to stop trying to control the levers of our life and to put it in the hands of God and say, you are God, I am not. I believe you, I trust you, I love you, you are Lord. Lead me, guide me, direct me, and your will will be done. Friends, when you trust in God and you learn to wait on Him like that, what the text says is that instead of living your life with no hope and with no power and with no faith, that you will be able to mount up with wings like the eagle. Even when you find yourself in the valley of darkness, in the eye of the storm, you will not give up or lose hope but you can fly with unshakable faith. Why? Because your comfort and your joy aren't found within yourself, but they come from your present and powerful Lord. Because you know that your greatest problem of being an enemy of God has been solved. You know how the story ends. You know that God is for you, that He has promised that He is coming, that His word is effective, and that when He shows up, His victory will be sure. He sees you. He will empower you. He will sustain and hold you fast even when you can't hold yourself up. And what I hope you know is this. Friends, as we find ourselves today in 2024 needing lasting joy and comfort because we too have guilt and power problems that we cannot solve, there is good news because Isaiah 40 has come true. And this God has come Himself in the flesh, in the person of Christ. This transcendent, almighty God has drawn near and added a human nature to his divine so that he could come and step off of heaven's throne to identify with us in our weakness, to face everything we face so that he could represent us. He came and he had no guilt. He deserved no covenant curses. He worshiped no idols and he had no selfish ambitions. He lived sinlessly the life that we could not live. He died on the cross to bear our curse as our substitute. He defeated the enemies of sin and death and hell and Satan that we can't do anything against. He came and bore the holy wrath of a holy God against our sin. He faced our hell so that we could be adopted sons and daughters of Almighty God, so that we could be given an inheritance that will never be taken away, so that that we could go back to the garden because he went under the sword of the angels and faced the judgment of God for us. Friends, your greatest problem if you're in Christ has been solved. Your greatest problem is not your family. It's not your marriage. It's not the circumstances. It's not the unknowability of tomorrow. As serious as those things feel, the greatest problem in our life is our sin and that we are enemies of God apart from him and we can't do anything about it, but in love and in grace and in mercy and in covenant faithfulness, the God of Isaiah 40 sent his son Jesus to solve that problem for us. Hey, if that doesn't wake you up, you're dead. Wake up. God is good. He's on the throne. He's ruling and reigning and he loves you. 
And friends, in a world where, where we are bombarded with empty promises, and when we are prone to look in all the wrong places for comfort, we have to see that we must look to Jesus alone for pardon and for power and for purpose and for pleasure. Jesus Christ is who we must look to alone for pardon because His sufficient sacrifice alone can atone for our sin and turn away God's judgment and justify us. We must look to God, Jesus alone, not only for pardon but for power because His work alone through the Spirit can alone change us and transform us and renew our minds and make us new creations who live with a heartbeat for God. Jesus alone gives us our purpose and our marching orders as a people called to save souls and mature saints. And friends, Jesus alone must be our pleasure because he satisfies more than anything else. Did you listen to the song we sang? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. You need to preach that to yourself every day because we must look to Him alone for all of these things. We can face difficult days and an unknowable future when we're resting our life in Jesus. Even when you find yourself disillusioned and distressed and doubting and when you find yourself sitting fearfully in the dark, when you're struggling and you're tempted to give in, And when you find yourself saying, God has forgotten me. Friend, the message of the Lord from Isaiah 40 is behold your God by fixing your eyes and your heart and your soul on Jesus. His love to you was proven not with words, but with blood on the hill of Calvary. And it is there in Christ alone that true and lasting joy and comfort and hope and peace and rest can be found. That's why believers for the last 200 years have have loved to sing that famous hymn with gusto, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil His oath and His covenant and His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. And when He shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne on Christ. The solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. If you believe it, sing it. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is 
sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Build your life on Christ. Behold your God. He will see you through whatever you're facing. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Lord God, I pray at this time that you will help us to respond to you in faith. God, draw our hearts near to you. If anybody here has been building their life on the wrong foundation and they need to get right today, help them to come and talk to one of the pastors. Help them to talk to a neighbor. Help them to pour out their heart. God, bring them to conviction and bring them to repentance knowing that Jesus is the Savior of sinners who calls the sick and guilty to come home. And God, if we find ourselves not beholding your glory and living with a wandering and weak faith because we're busy staring at ourselves and trying to control our lives and running after idols to satisfy. God, lead us in repentance. Take our eyes away from lesser things and help us to behold you, the Lord of all glory and the only source of true comfort. I ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.